Warning. The program you're about to hear is absolutely filthy and thoroughly disgusting. Furthermore, listening to it will immediately turn you into a bottom. Bottom. Hey, everyone. <laughs> Watch me shove this beer can up my ass. I'm proud to declare the Adam Sank Show and his ass open to the wind. Ass open to the wind. This is fuckery. <laughs> this is all fuckery. <laughs> fuckery, fuckery, fuckery. Powered by DNR Studios. And now... Give a warm round of applause to my friend and yours, Adam Sank. Jenny, calm down, Jenny. Not that exciting. It's just a podcast. What'd you say? A lot to eat today. Yes. Welcome to the Adam Sank Show. We're not live, but it's a brand new episode. If you're listening at 11 a.m. Eastern, it says Saturday, July 16th, but that was actually last week. Uh, Saturday, July 23rd in the year 2022 at dnrstudios.com, the only place to hear this podcast, also on the DNR Cast app. If you listen anyplace else, leave us your ratings and reviews, I beg you, on Apple Podcasts or any platform you use. Email me your penis, your butthole, your mm. thoughts and ponderings and questions and comments at adam at adamsank.com. Like the Adam Sank Show Facebook page where I post lots of interesting shit. Get your ass merchandise, t-shirts, tank tops, mugs, bags, uh, a lot of cute stuff. All of it's available at adamsank.com, as is the ass blog where I blog behind the scenes. Call us on the ass hotline anytime. Leave us a voicemail, 804-TALK-ASS. Get vaccinated and boosted and stand with Ukraine. Uh, we have two guests today, Jenny. Fun. The first is, uh, well, much later, actually. We're going to be talking to James Gavin, the author of a new book called George Michael, A Life, mm -hmm. a fascinating look at the, uh, the life of the late singer. We'll also be talking to Time Out New York Theater editor Adam Feldman about all the craziness surrounding the current Broadway revival of Funny Girl. A lot of noise around that. They are some people who need people. <laughs> oh, car. And people are raining on their parade. Aye. Um, as you can hear, Jenny Aaron is back with us. Hi. Yes, co-hostess. Fun. Jenny, last week was exciting with Dallas Steel, wasn't it? It was. I, I was amazed by how deep... It went it um, emotionally. You don't expect a porn star to be talking about suicide and death and, and yeah, and, Black and Lives Matter. And it, it was really quite an umbrella he stood under. I, I hope that he's <laughs> had some counseling. Speaking I, as a future therapist, I yes, hope he's. I hope so too. I would think he has. Who knows? But porn is its own form of therapy. Isn't it, though? It's like it. exposure therapy. Exactly. Also with us is the queen of fuckery, J.B. Bercy. Hello, J.B. Hola. Welcome back. We are we, we were having some technical problems with the DNR Cast app that we're trying to solve. Yes, I'm sure by the time this episode airs, all, all will be will cleared be up. Yeah. Um. But uh, but this yes, it's been a great weekend for technology fuck ups today. Yes, it has. <laughs> but uh, the important thing is we move on. We we go forward. Um. A reminder to nominate us for a oh here's my trumpet. Oh, where is it? Reminder to nominate us for a podcast award. We are competing in the comedy category. Go to podcastawards.com, register as a nominator and voter. It is free. They won't spam you. Nominate us in two categories, comedy and Adam Curry, People's Choice. When you register, make sure you agree to be a voter as well as a nominator. And if we are nominated, go back to the website between August 8th through 13th and vote for us in whatever categories you nominated us in. 
Also, for LGBTQ podcasts, vote for either Derek and Romaine or If These Ovaries Could Talk, which is so disturbing. I love that show, and I love those two chicks, but that is a disturbing title of the podcast. I disagree. You like it? I do. It's it's also the name of their book. I know. I get it. Um... I thought for our little chit-chat discussion, I would bring up the fact this actually hit the news a couple weeks ago, but Brad Pitt came forward and announced that he has prosopagnosia, otherwise known as facial blindness. And as a result, many people think he's like stuck up or aloof, but it's only because he doesn't fucking recognize them when he sees them. What a great excuse not to remember anyone's name. But Jenny, I have this. Do you? And I've been saying this for years. Yes, I have a really hard time recognizing people unless there's something unusual about them or I know them very well. Huh. So, you know, I would, I would never mistake JB for anyone. I see him every week for five years now. But, yep. right. but if, if I had just met JB and there was another guy standing next to JB who looked kind of like JB in terms of build, color, you know, body type, I would not have any fucking idea which one was which. Even though the low-key piece of me will, will always bother I'm saying, Adam, you racist. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. People think all kinds of things about me. When I was in the gay men's chorus, there were 270 gay men. I can't tell you how many of them were the same person to me. <laughs> right. That's White, terrible. black, Asian, Latin, it didn't matter. It wasn't a racial thing. It's It's more about your... Uh, your height and your build, and and like if two guys have blonde hair, same person to me. I do, I can't tell. <laughs> now, is this qualified to be a disorder? Do yes. we think it is? Absolutely. Okay. There are some people who have it so bad that they don't recognize their own family members. They have to be told every time. I, I don't mean to laugh, but this is like an amusing. As a therapist, you must know this. I no, I think it's a it's some kind of coping mechanism. It is I not. Think. Yeah, it's I think a, there's a blockage. It's a part of my brain. I've never been a visual person, right? I'm terrible at puzzles. I don't appreciate vi- the visual arts. I'm, a, I'm entirely verbal. So uh, I just don't pay attention that much to what but people look like. But aren't you ad- like. you're attracted to people visually? I am, but I, I, I can't tell one from the other. Two hot guys are the same guy to Interesting. me. Interesting. There are certain features that I find. You know, if someone has beautiful eyes, I can tell they're beautiful eyes. Sure. But I can't tell whose eyes they are. So is this your way of linking yourself to Brad Pitt? I, I, yes. But it's also true. I can prove that I had this before Brad Pitt's announcement because I talk about it on my second comedy album. Okay. I have a whole bit called Cruising the Blind where there were two blind guys that worked in the same building as me. Both had blonde hair. Both had seeing eye dogs. Okay. The dogs were different, but the guys looked the same to me. And one day I saw the second blind guy and said to him, oh, you have a new dog. And he was like, nope, same dog. And then I wanted to explain to him that I had facial blindness, but, but the punchline punch is... He's legit blind. It's hard to complain that you have facial blindness to yeah. someone so with actual, actual blindness. Blind. It exactly. sounds like bullshit. Yeah. So but yeah. That's hilarious. It's a thing. What if you had a three-way with, with both oh blind I would love it. Would the dogs watch? They were so hot. I would, I'd be into everything. Dogs, boys, the whole thing. Okay. Anyway, we're going to... Oh, JB, why are you texting me? What's this about? That was a while ago. That was a while <laughs> this is ago. a new text. Oh, my God. Something's I... wrong with the app. You sent this to me instead of Romaine. Oh, shit. <laughs> God damn it. Are you stoned today? No, I'm not. I'm really not. Because, actually, I haven't bought any weed because I've been stuck inside the house for COVID. I was like, oh, I can't wait to buy some weed. 
So yeah. So you're not stoned, but you're thinking about it, and that's what's distracting you. A little bit, a little bit. The anticipation. All yes. right. Well, let's get started with the news. And um, this first story is a bummer, but I feel like it's important because I, mm. I I feel like I had the same argument with ten different people on social media in this in the same week, and it was all about Bette Midler. Bette Midler tweeted out this thing a couple weeks ago where she said, women of the world, I'm not going to try to do a Bette Midler impression, women of the world, we are being stripped of our rights over our bodies, our lives, and even our name. They don't call us women anymore. They call us birthing people or menstruators and even people with vaginas. Don't let them erase you. Every human on earth owes you. This tweet repeated several key phrases and talking points from a New York Times op-ed written by a woman named Pamela Paul, which basically said, we can't say women anymore. She somehow linked inclusive language that includes trans and non-binary people with Roe v. Wade being overturned. And the fact is, those two things have nothing to do with one another. But what's happening here is there is an organized attempt, I believe, and others believe, to divide the left, mm -hmm. to turn feminists against trans women mm -hmm. by claiming that women are somehow under attack because of trans women or by trans women. There's a great op-ed about this in something called extramagazine.com, that's X-T-R-A, it's a Canadian website. I'd never seen it before, but there's a, a, an author named Mel Woods who wrote this great op-ed that kind of explains all of this. And in, in the article, she says, how did we get here? For years, anti-trans activists have pitted cisgender women with LGB folks against each other, and mainstream and academia have normalized that dichotomy. The idea that women's rights and trans rights are at odds has somehow become a regular and acceptable thing to think and publish in the pages of the world's most powerful publications. When, when fans, including myself, of Bette Midler said to her, hey, this is anti-trans bullshit, she basically doubled down and mm -hmm. said, I fought for marginalized people for as long as I can remember. Still, if you want to dismiss my 60 years of proven love and concern over a tweet that accidentally angered the very people I've always supported and adored, so be it. And a lot of people on my Facebook page also got angry at me. Bette Midler's awesome. Bette Midler's an ally. Why are you slamming Bette Midler? When people say or tweet harmful shit, we call them out on it. Absolutely. Nobody gets a pass just because they're supposedly an ally. Also, the work is never done. She might have done all of that work, yes, during the, her decades of activism, but you still have to continue to do the work. I don't know that she did a lot of work. She sang in gay bathhouses because nobody else wanted to hire her at that time. That's a good she point. She built her career on the backs of gay men. That doesn't make her a fucking activist. You're right. I don't think she's an activist. I don't think she's a bad person, and I don't think she meant harm. But she's not that bright if she thinks that Roe v. Wade being overturned has anything to do with inclusive language. And let's be clear, this inclusive language, these are <clears throat> guidelines that are being adopted by organizations like Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. to include people who have reproductive systems but don't identify as women, right? right. You're talking about trans men right. who have vaginas and non-binary people who have vaginas and reproductive systems. This is meant to include them. If you're a woman and you go to Planned Parenthood, you will be referred to as a woman. Right. Nobody will try to mislabel you or call you anything else. Right. 
And even if they did, what the fuck does that have to do with the conservatives on the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade? How are those things connected? She's fighting with the wrong people. That's it's, right. It's, and, and no one has to be from an outside group to divide us. We do it perfectly well on our own. That's right. So I just, uh, I, there's so much more to say about this, but I, I keep having this argument with people who should be on the same side. Mm -hmm. We should all be on the same side. We're all being repressed. If you're not a straight, white, Christian male in this country right now, you are in danger of having your rights taken away Absolutely. by the Supreme Court and by the impending Republican majority in the House and possibly the Senate. These are the enemies, yep. not trans women, who have really nothing, and are, we're trying to give them a little bit of dignity mm -hmm. and trying to include them. They are not out to erase women. And this is trans men in this case, right? Exactly. Because exactly. they're the ones who are able but, to carry. But the other side of this is are, are the TERFs, like J.K. Rowling, who say that right. trans women are really just men in drag. Trying right. to, it's, it, they're being attacked on both sides. Correct. I just want to say, <laughs> I'm in danger. And that's it. Yeah, yeah. it's no joke. Yeah. 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 We're all in danger. It affects a lot of people. So just fight the real enemy and, you know, Bette Midler, get your fucking act together. And you too, Macy Gray. The fuck is oh. that shit? <laughs> you're not a real woman if you're a trans woman. Fuck her. Yeah. One-hit wonder. I loved her album. What a shame. She tried to walk away and she stumbled. That's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile... An anti-gay pastor has been accused of having multiple gay affairs and sexually harassing men. Uh, not hey. This person's name is Jesse Lee Peterson. He is a pastor and online radio host. Um, he calls his show The Manosphere. What? That's actually, pretty no. gay. I'm sorry. Right? Thank you. Thank you, sis. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as Ab said, I said, that's gay. Actually... <laughs> That's not the name of the show. The, the Manosphere appear, apparently is an online community, uh -oh. which is even gayer. Yeah. Uh, a loose network of men's loose. rights. <laughs> Definitely loose, sis. <laughs> a loose network of men's, right activists, men's rights activists, incel groups, yeah. and similar organizations. Um, the radical right-wing Catholic site Church Militant first broke the story in June 30th with a 30-minute video featuring interviews with the men accusing Peterson of making unwanted sexual advances toward them. Uh, one man says he was sexually involved with Peterson, who is unmarried, for roughly 10 years. Um, this guy, this, this uh, pastor, Jesse Lee Peterson, he's a black guy of course. who told people that they, instead of celebrating Pride, they should celebrate White History Month oh, in June. Oh, God. So he's not well. He's not well. Um, Peterson has described homosexuality as the spirit of the devil. I mean, it is, and that's what it, makes it so hot. It's so fun. Um, as I said, he called for Christians to celebrate White History in opposition to LGBTQ Pride Month. Uh, according to the Daily Beast, the video that came out from that website follows an online spat between... Peterson and Church Militant's founder named Anthony Michael Voris. Um, basically, the, they're, these right-wing Looney Tunes are eating each other, and I couldn't be happier about it. Great. Um, okay, as someone who goes to the meetings every week, uh, you know, and, and those black people meetings, you know, we have them every week. Uh, <laughs> he was disowned a while ago. We don't know her. Thank you so much. Good. Because what the shit? What the shit? Like, <laughs> why? Like, 
A men's rice group, what does that sound like? That just sounds like something for men to just run wild. The, you know, those evil men to run wild and say, oh, rape is okay and all this other crazy stuff. It's like, what? You are you already have so much power. I'm right. missing the second page of my rundown. Do you have it? Uh, I desperately no. need it for the uh, <laughs> for the Adam Feldman segment. Thank you. Oh, that rundown. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna move on now because New York theater queens have been obsessing for weeks about what's happening on and off stage with the Broadway revival of Funny Girl. First, has has anyone in this room seen it? No. <laughs> okay. Me neither. First, it was announced that musical star Beanie Feldstein would be leaving the show at the end of September. Then came rumors that Leah Michelle, best known as Rachel from Glee, would be taking over the role. Feldstein then announced she'd be leaving the production much earlier than planned on July 31st. Uh, that was followed by an official announcement of Leah Michelle's taking over the role. Here with us in studio to explain why gay men are freaking out over this <laughs> is Time Out New York's theater editor and critic, Adam Feldman. Welcome, Adam. Hello. Hello, Brad Pitt. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were Brad Pitt. No, that's what I assumed. I, I'm on the Brad Pitt show, right? Totally. <laughs> I just looked around, and there's three Brad Pitts. Now, Adam, you're, oh, easy, you. you're easy for me to recognize because you have a mustache. If you have a telltale trait like a mustache... No, I'm, I'm a little bit the same way. I kind of bunch people into narratives in my head, and then I, I think about them that way. I'll tell you what, I never forget a penis. <laughs> Every penis is unique. All right, let's get into this. Stars leave and get replaced on Broadway all the time. Why is this particular replacement causing such a stir? Well, stars don't often leave this early in their runs is uh, one of the big things. When did she start? <clears throat> she started when the show opened, which was in, in March, and um, usually... These stars stick around for nine months or a year, and then everything hit the fan because it turned out that the performance was not what people had hoped. And I was one of the people who hoped it would be great, by the way. When this casting was announced, people were like, can Beanie do the role? And I was like, let's see. I hope she can. Right. I, I found her very charming in her past work. You know, mm -hmm. She's done musicals. She was speaking of Bette Midler. She was in the Bette Midler Hello, Dolly. And she was very charming in it. She had a smaller role. But uh, it was very promising. And I thought, well, you know, we can't just do Barbara clones for the rest of history. Right. Why not bring in someone new, a fresh, young comic talent, see how it goes? And uh, they obviously were thinking that as well. This was a production that had been, a production of Funny Girl had been done in London uh, a few years ago, and it had been a success. And so Sonia Friedman, the producer, the British producer who brings a lot of British stuff over to Broadway, uh, thought, well, we'll bring this one over, and who can we get to do it? And uh, Beanie Feldstein, for various reasons, seemed like a good idea. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out not to have been such a great idea, because as charming as she is, uh, her voice is not a good match for the part. And Which is a nice way of saying she can't sing it. She can't sing the part the way that we're used to hearing the part sung. I think Which is correctly. Well, yeah. And Barbara Streisand, of course, became a megastar largely on the basis of the show. She had, she had had a career before, and she was a successful recording artist. She was a rising star. But this was the show that cemented Barbara Streisand as an enormous yeah. mass culture star. And, so, and, and then she did the movie, and she won an Oscar. And, you know, uh, it, it, this is a Barbara Streisand role. Now, she wasn't the first person that they wanted for that show, Barbara Streisand. Like, it could have been the Anne Bancroft show or the... But, okay, but you know, back to, anyway, to, to Bean. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, Adam, I, for, yeah. years, for years, there had, there, had been, there had been talk of Leah Michelle playing Fanny Bryce in the revival of Funny Girl. Why not just go to Leah Michelle to begin with? Well, Leah Michelle had been talking herself about 
playing that. There had been talk as a nice way of saying Leah Michelle had very much expressed interest in playing it. And of course on the show Glee, she, her character was obsessed with playing this part. And so she was very much associated in the public mind with this. And but, she is a Jewish woman who and she sounds a, a lot like Barbara Streisand. She's, a, she's a, a culturally associated Jewish woman. I think she was raised Catholic, but she, 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 oh. she reads Jewish and her character on the show was Jewish. Um, and so uh, she... Uh, yes, and then a few years ago, I think she felt like she had done it too much, and she didn't want to do it. She said that she didn't want to do it. That maybe also be because they didn't want her in. Right. The, I mean, the, the truth is, casting Leah in it would have been very on the nose, uh, and not an exciting casting choice. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, stories started coming out. There had always been stories drifting around, but there started really becoming an effort and, a, and an organized kind of uh, uh, backlash. backlash against Leah Michelle. And as on, a person. As a person. And she on, did were, some pretty gnarly things. There were stories of uh, other co-stars having felt bullied by her on the set of Glee. And so the internet turned on her. And she, for, for this reason among others, was not going to be a great choice necessarily to, to, to top line this reunion, this uh, revival. So, so long story shorter, Beanie comes in. She does the thing. Immediately, there are worries in the show Queen community because video starts to leak of her early performances, and people are like, oh, wow, no, this voice is not right. And then the show opens. It gets generally quite negative reviews, including by me. Uh, but I was hardly alone in that assessment. Pretty much everyone said the same thing, which is, you know, she seems like a charming gal, and she's out of depth. So uh, the... Production at this point starts panicking. They have a lot of advanced sales, but the sales that are coming in are weaker. The word of mouth is bad. The reviews are bad. The Tony nominations come, come out. They, the show is almost completely ignored. There's one actor, a featured actor, who gets a nomination. Everything else, including Beattie, uh, ignored. So they're, they're scrambling now to try to keep this production afloat and not lose all of their money. So they start talking kind of behind the scenes to Leah Michelle who has obviously been waiting in the wings. She's literally in the wings waiting for this. Praying to her gods um, uh, that this might happen. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a lot, there's different stories going on about exactly what happened, but it, it looks like they, everyone had agreed that um, Beanie and Jane Lynch, her, her co-star, um, who is also, funnily enough, Leah Michelle's co-star from Glee. Right, right. But Beanie and, and Jane are in this together. And, uh, Jane so they, plays her mother. Uh, right, Jane plays her mother, absurdly. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the two of them uh, agreed that they would leave earlier than planned. So they, they made an announcement that they're going to leave September 26th, and, um, you know, that, and then the, someone will take over. And that was, you know, so that was sort of left a little bit nebulous. But meanwhile, the producers were furiously negotiating with Leah Michelle. And that information leaked out to a, a gossip site and then to Gawker. And, and it went wide. And then suddenly this, what was supposed to be an easy peasy transition uh, was very public and very, for Beanie, I imagine, very humiliating. Let me jump in for a second. Gawker, this is probably Gawker's first scoop <laughs> in a decade. Gawker was dead for years after... Peter Thiel uh, funded Hulk Hogan's lawsuit against them and sued them into into extinction. That's Suddenly, right. Gawker's back and making news again. That's yeah, well, kind I of mean, an interesting... They didn't quite get the scoop because it was on this website called Showbiz411. Roger Friedman, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. anyway, he, he runs yes. a website. And he broke that story a few days before in a, in a fairly authoritative way. There had already been 
rumors swirling around, but he came down, put his foot down, and said, this is true. This but is let, happen. let me make sure I get this, I have this right so far, Adam. So Beanie and Jane were going to leave the show regardless, and they were okay with that. Well, they were being, they were being pressed out of the show. Okay. But they, they understood, and yep. they were willing to go quietly. Right. But somehow the news that it was Leah Michelle replacing Beanie upset both of them so much that they decided to leave earlier than planned. Is that right? Uh, yes, and I think it's less the news that it was Leah per se than the, the, I, what I imagine is the feeling that all these machinations were happening behind her back uh, and the uh, public knowledge and sort of exaltation that resulted from the leak of the Leah news because there became all of this news, another wave of news, about uh, Leah and about her, and it was very unflattering to her. It was very public. Uh, people were attacking Leah. The lo people love attacking Leah and Michelle, but they were also making fun of Beanie and talk, you know, and, and a lot of people were suddenly turned around on Leah and Michelle. Leah and Michelle, who people had been like, no, she should never play Fanny, suddenly were like, oh, Leah and Michelle is going to be such a good change after Beanie. And, you know, so it, it was this um, sort of ugly reversal in the narrative that she was suddenly in the middle of in this way that she was not in control of and that the producers uh, were not in control of, but somehow someone on that team had leaked. Go ahead, Jenny. No, I was just going to say it must have been a real shock to Beanie because she's been in all of these highly comforting roles. Like, all of her movies have been so, um, you know, applauded. And this is, like, her first rude... Her first failure. Her first, you know, br right. brush with the not nice side of show business. I'm sure she's fully aware that it exists, but it seems that she's only had positive experiences. Well, yeah, and sympathetically, I mean, I can say that, you know, I, I, I truly believe that she wanted to be good in this part. Uh, of course. I, I think it was a, a dream of hers mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, prob and probably a thrill. And then it, it turned very quickly, it soured very quickly into something that was really horrible for her. Adam, part of the problem, I think, is it's not a great show to begin with, right? right? Everyone sort of agrees that Funny Girl is, is sort of a problematic show uh, and structurally and that the, what made it so great the first time around was Barbara Streisand and her sure. voice. Right, and that's the problem. So without a strong singer, yeah. you just have a, a, a mediocre show. That's the problem, and, I, and that's what I said in my review, in fact, is that, <laughs> is that the problem is the show is not good enough to, to do its own work. You really need someone who has the goods, and, and Beanie has the okays, and that's not <laughs> good enough. You know, you, it has, you need someone who's really going to push it all through on, on, on her own strength. If Leah Michelle comes in, knocks it out of the park... Uh, the show gets re-reviewed. I assume you're going to re-review it. The show it. will get re-reviewed. Is that her get-out-of-jail-free card? Does everyone then forgive Leah Michelle for her problematic personality and say, well, she's fucking great? Okay, well, first of all, it's not a guarantee that she'll knock it out of the park. Um, right. Because people who had problems with Leah being cast in the first place had problems for a reason. People are concerned that she is not funny enough for the part, that she's not charming enough for the part. And her, her public performances and her public persona don't necessarily suggest the winsomeness that we want from a Fanny Bryce. She has the voice, uh, but does she have the other qualities that are necessary for the role? So it's not a, it's not a guaranteed sure thing. Uh, but even if she is great in it, you know, uh, I think we can hold more than one thought in our heads at a time. Right. Uh, you know, I think we can say, yes, she's going to be, she's better in this than, also she has the advantage of now being compared to Beanie instead of being compared to 
Barbara. Right. Right. Because in terms of their immediate precedent in the role, um, <laughs> it'll be an easier job for her. So uh, I think that she will, she is in the middle of a general image rehabilitation project. <laughs> Leah is. She did that documentary. It's a long about Spring haul. Awakening. It's a long haul. She, she you know, uh, and, uh, and this will be a, a good step in the right direction, possibly. I don't think everyone's going to be thrilled with her, her fanny necessarily, but I think it will meet. You know what I think it's going to be like is, you remember when Spider-Man was on Broadway and uh, it was in previews for seven months and Spider-Men were falling from the sky and, they, you know, <laughs> they didn't know Multiple what to injuries. do. And it was yeah. in previews for seven months and, and finally they fired Julie Tamer, the director, and they brought in a new director, closed the show and they reopened it. And, and what you had was a not a great Broadway musical at the end, but you had a functional Broadway musical. Mm. You know, you had Spider-Man version two was a, recognizable Broadway musical. And uh, the first one was just a total mess. So I think this people This is are, not a hopeful comparison. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but, that, this, but that's why Beanie, that's another reason that Beanie is leaving early. Is, so, so what we're getting back to is that this, this announcement came out on Gawker, not announcement, but this rumor came out on Gawker, and it seemed pretty well sourced, and it was. And, uh, and she freaked out, uh, and, and she quit the show. Uh, and she did it on Instagram without telling people. Um, I mean, that's what people say. Now, of course, this week they've issued a joint statement saying, oh, no, this was all planned all along. This was, of course, what we Bullshit. wanted. Um, th that uh, reads like a, like a hostage note. Uh, <laughs> it did really, it's not a convincing um, Well, I'm living statement. for the drama. Uh, I thank you for shedding insight. We have to leave it there. But um, Adam, how can people follow you online? I'm sure you'll be and you'll be reporting more of these tidbits as they yeah, come for, in. Yeah, for for this purpose, I think the best way is is on Twitter. I'm there as, as uh, Feldman Adam, and a, I have a been, nice I, Episcopal boy. I have been uh, sharing some inside scoops from anonymous backstage sources, and they have been adding to the drama. And very reliable, I will say. They, all of your all of your scoops they turned have, out to be. Accurate. So uh, Feldman Adam on Twitter. Yeah, Feldman Adam on Twitter. Thank you for having me on, Brad. I'm such always. a fan. Oh, thank you so much, Wendy. I'm a fan of yours too. And you can you can follow Brad's uh, Brad. You can follow Adam's work in Time Out New York, where he writes about theater and reviews theater. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, well, speaking of problematic people, mm. Jesse Smollett Ugh. has made an appearance in uh, in a surprising way. The website QueerTea.com, which we often talk about, has a regular feature where they show just hot guys. They just go through Instagram and they pick photos of, like, celebrities and other hot influencers. Sure. And uh, a couple weeks ago, in their recapping of Thirst Traps, they included Jesse Smollett's picture, shirtless, and they just wrote, Jesse Smollett made an appearance. That was literally their caption. Fact. <laughs> and the queer tea readers, if you can call them that, went insane. The comments were really uh, quite extreme. Jussie, seriously, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. 100%. This man made gay people reporting hate crimes more difficult and less believed by authorities. Negative impact to the safety and well-being of gay people everywhere. And here you are celebrating him. Shameful. He is as much an inspiration as Marjorie Taylor Greene. What lug nut included him on this list? Sorry, as many gays do, I do not subscribe to the since the person sucks dick, we or I am expected to support everything they say and do. Jussie, no way. That lying SOB, how could you include him on that list? You lowered the bar on those gorgeous men that are listed. Screw Jussie. I am disgusted that they promoted that criminal Jussie smut. He, <laughs> he needs to go away. Shame on queerty. And on and on oh and on God. and on. So, JB, you look like you want to say something. 
Okay, so as just clarify, this is just a list of thirst traps. Like, there's no political a compendium game. of photos. Right. Okay. So there are tons of gay people in the community who we fucking hate, who gay men are still sucking their dicks to. Uh, Aaron Shot is one of the names that Shock. comes. Yes. Shot. Oh, one name that comes to mind. Right. But he's still out in the gay parties and stuff, and no one's saying hard about that. Like, I am. Uh, besides us, like we are normal people. Like, but we don't go on queer and be like, oh no, fuck Jesse right. Simone. Like, bitch, he, she, she's on the list for being a thirst trap. There's nothing. There's there's nothing wrong or anything about that. Excuse oh, me, guys. I have to take this. Hold on, I gotta open it for you. Okay. <laughs> uh, but in fairness, Aaron Shock is not being celebrated on Queer Tea. No, I think he completely disappeared. And maybe if he's appearing at a party, fine. But he's not. But also, I get what JB's saying. But I do think it's a little early to be rehabilitating Jesse Smollett and making it look <laughs> like he's just a normal. Yeah, there was no turnaround time person. at all. So. Um, all right, JB is going to try to get our guest on the uh, on the old clean feed. We're going to give clean feed another try because I am Charlie Brown with the football. Uh, Wendy Williams. Good grief! Wait, so who's the girl? Is it, is it you. You're Lucy. Oh no! No, clean feed is Lucy. I'm Charlie Brown. Uh, Wendy Williams reportedly hates the final episode of her show. Of course. Uh, as we, uh, I don't know if I ever even mentioned it when it happened, but the. The final episode of the Wendy Williams show aired without Wendy Williams being <laughs> any part of it, um, just as she hasn't been for the past couple of years. Um, she told the New York Post, there was nothing I liked about the final episode. Um, Debmar Mercury, which I guess is the production company, <laughs> in my opinion, should have done it with me, not with those other people. When asked why she wasn't involved... She said that the production company did not ask her to make an appearance. She said, I sat in my apartment and I watched it and I was like, eek. The show's finale come after a string of personal issues and health troubles for Wendy Williams, the latter of which have worsened over time. She recently spoke with TMZ about the advancement of her lymphedema, which involved her with 5% feeling left in her feet. Mm. Um... Who knows what really is going on with her? It's an ongoing saga. But it it really would have been a nice way to honor. I mean, the show is still called the Wendy Williams Show. Yeah. Like that would have been nice to at least have called her in, you know, for a five minute wrap up of a show that she was a part of for so long. I agree, and I think if there was any way they could have done it without her like throwing them a curveball, they would have done it. But I think they were afraid that she was going to do something crazy. Of course. It wasn't live. Right. So if it had gone haywire, they could have yeah. just cut out that part. They could have done a remote. They could have done... Yeah, yeah. I think there's such bad blood uh, at you're this right. point. It's kind of like when Charlie Sheen <laughs> went crazy and left Two and a Half Men and started trashing Chuck Lorre. Like right. Chuck Lorre was never going to have Charlie Sheen back on that show. No, never. But anyway... Uh, but it wasn't called The Charlie Sheen Show. No, but it basically was. I sure. Mean, he was the reason... It was, people weren't tuning in to see John Cryer... Or that kid. Talk, who, about, talk for yourself. That kid who became a born again Christian. <laughs> do you have James on the phone, JB? Um, oh, yes. We do have him on the phone. I just want to try clean feet one more Try it, honey. Um, I will do this last story, which is that the Golden Girls oh. may become an animated series. That would be great. Uh, and JB would like this. Not only is it animated, but it takes place in the year 3033. <laughs> it's like a science fiction animated Golden Girls. But they look exactly the same. Yes. This was put together by a guy named Mike Hollingsworth. 
um, who previously worked as a director on BoJack Horseman. Oh. And he's using the original scripts and audio as a starting point, but then he adds lots of visual gags and humor. In the clip that I saw, um, Sophia was a robot. <laughs> <laughs> she like, That's perfect. Who's this giant robot with Sophia's head? Um, as long as they do it lovingly, I'm good. Yeah, me too. It sounds fun. So there was already a pilot made, and now there's talk of a series. Are we good? Um, yes or no? We're, we're not good with clean feet, but we have them on the phone. All right. So Our guest fine. today is an entertainment journalist and the acclaimed author of biographies of such celebrities as Lena Horne, Chet yes. Baker, and Peggy Lee. His latest book is called George Michael, A Life. Please give a warm-ass welcome to James Gavin. Adam, greetings from sunny Palm Springs, California. Another Palm Springs. I know. This is two weeks in a row we have a guest from Palm Springs. Thank you for waking up early. How are you, sweet James? <laughs> I just got back the day before yesterday from nine days in London. Oh. That was very interesting. I did a deluge of publicity for my book. I'm in a whirlwind here, Adam, that I wasn't anticipating. This I book is, is catching on. It's so good. It is such a page turner. I, I haven't finished it, but I literally can't put it down. And congratulations on a rave review from the New York Times. Thank you, Adam. You never know. You can never second guess the way it's going to go, can you? No. And, and I imagine in England, it's even, uh, there's even more of a fervor because, I, and this is one of the things I didn't know until, until reading your book, Wham! was hugely popular in England before anyone in the United States had ever heard of them. For about a year and a half, they were. Wham! was founded in 1983. Wham! started to hit big in 1983-84. And then in 1985, Wham! had its brief moment of, of huge chart-topping fame in the U.S. with Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and Careless Whisper, which is really a George Michael record. And from that point on, George was off and running on this colossally epic roller coaster hell ride that was his life. There's so many uh, things I want to talk to you about. Um, let's get started with his childhood, because he had a rather unhappy one, did he not? I'm afraid he did, yes. He, although, by, by all appearances, it was wonderful, because his dad was a Greek Cypriot immigrant to northern London and a self-made man who arrived in England with a vengeance and became a successful restaurateur, had three children, a lovely British wife, and he had two, and the two daughters, and, and, and the son, George, and the son, of course, was the boy who was different. And as he entered into adolescence and began to know how he was different, he was strongly aware, as many of us are, that dad would not approve because his father had the homophobia of the day, of his generation, and plus a little more so because of the Greek Orthodox religious right. background. And also because, let's see, I'm doing the math in my head. When George was uh, 13, 14 years old, so that, that was uh, the, the mid-70s, but then by the early 80s, when he was in his late teens, that's when AIDS hit. And George would pass newsstands in London, as everyone did, and see tabloid covers with horror, shock cover stories about AIDS. And so the gay community had this added layer of stigma and shame to deal with. But and, he, was, he was also uh, a very unattractive person, right? And, until 
He turned 19. He was, you write that he was overweight, had terrible skin, a unibrow, thick glasses. He had poor eyesight. <laughs> That's true. And he literally yeah. transformed himself into one of the sexiest, most beautiful men of, of his generation. He did do that. And the template for him was Andrew Ridgely, his super cool classmate, who had a, had a, had a blasé swagger about him and who looked great and who had sharp taste in clothes, knew how to put an outfit together, and who just didn't seem to have a care in the world. And he attracted people and fans to him like bees to honey. And George saw in Andrew the template for what he wanted to be. So even though we all know that George did the heavy lifting, musically speaking, in that group, if it were not for Andrew, there would never have been a Wham! and there probably would not have been a George. It's so interesting because they were school friends together, right? They were, they were uh, schoolboy friends. Andrew kind of adopted this, this outcast um, into his circle. But he contributed virtually nothing musically to Wham. That is pretty much correct. But what he but Wham was about an image, and Andrew created that image. George saw in Andrew what he George wanted to be, could be, and so as Simon Napier Bell, who was the co-manager of Wham, has said, Wham consisted of a real Andrew Ridgely and a and a and a imitation Andrew Ridgely, and that was George. And in their early days, their first few songs were essentially rap songs, which is shocking now. But when, but when you go back and listen to them, I mean, it was very much white boy rap, but they were, that, that was sort of the early template for the band, right? Absolutely. In the early 80s, rap was so new, and there were hardly any examples of it on the landscape, certainly in the field of white music. Debbie Harry was one of, if not the first uh, white artist who did it. With Rapture. And so... Yeah, exactly. So, but George didn't linger in his rap phase for very long because he he had a brilliant ability to he wanted to be a superstar more than anything else, more than being a singer or a songwriter, things that came naturally to him. He wanted to be a world superstar. And so he very methodically took the steps necessary to 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 get there, and of course he did. Um it was it was a brilliantly orchestrated early career. Then you get into the later career, and that's another story. You know, in reading the book, George Michael comes across as a, as a really a naturally gifted artist, someone with very little training musically, but who certainly had that incredible singing voice and also the ear, the ability to just know what sounded cool and new and to produce the music as well as to create it. But he also comes across as incredibly difficult to work with and, and rather unlikable. Was that your impression well, in, in talking to, to the many, many sources that you spoke with? Unlikable, no. I would go so far as to say the opposite. I hardly came across a single person. In fact, I'm not sure that I came across even one who did not like George or love George. But what, but what you're referring to is the fact that he was super particular about what he wanted. He was a control freak in every possible way. Uh, and he employed great musicians and great engineers to carry out his vision. So there wasn't a lot of creative wiggle room for anybody else in the mix. But in the end, George was right. Through the Listen Without Prejudice album, 
which more or less, the, the early success of Wham! and Listen Without Prejudice in 1990 bookends George's white-hot success in the U.S. And then after that, for a variety of reasons, it started to crumble. So let's talk about, excuse me, let's talk about those reasons. Why did his stardom flame out when it did? It didn't flame out in the U.K., but in the U.S. it did. And here's what happened. So Listen Without Prejudice came out. It sold half of what Faith had sold, his blockbuster breakthrough album. Faith right. was 88. Listen Without Prejudice was 1990. And for a variety of reasons that had to do with the fact that George had created this character, this George Michael character, that... That, that, that helped him achieve all his goals, this hyper-macho biker dude that was so not what George was about. So he was standing on arena stages all over the world. Mm -hmm. Girls were screaming for him so loudly that he couldn't sometimes not hear the music. He knew he was gay. He was terrified that they would find out he was gay. He was petrified. And basically from that point onward, Adam, he... he went about destroying George Michael. So here are the steps he took. He sued his record company uh, for, for on, a, on, a, on, a, on a number of charges that were not based in reality. It was an unwinnable case. He did not release a new album between 1991 and 1995. There were no new George Michael albums. And pop music of that type is ephemeral. And he was replaced. And by the time he came back with the album that made me fall in love with George Michael, Older, which was not number one material, George was pretty much over in the States. You know, his sexuality really seems to have been the elephant in the room for his entire life and certainly for his entire career. Uh, there were other British rockers at the time, his rivals, like Boy George, who were just openly gay. I mean, you know, Boy George maybe didn't talk about it in the early days as much as he would later, but no one ever questioned that Boy George was gay. Why was it so important to George Michael that he keep this a secret, not only from the public, but even from many of the people that were close to him? I would say for two reasons. One of them was that his thirst for superstardom was so intense. And, and why does one... What, what, what leads one to want millions and millions of people the world over to adore you? It's because there's, George said this himself, there's something empty inside that, that needs filling. You, 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 that's how much love you think you need in order to feel good about yourself. And it didn't ultimately do the trick. So George was, first of all, petrified, to use that word again, of what he stood to lose Back in the 1990s, we can't forget how different things were back then in this regard. And second, he was, and, and far sadder, is that he was afraid of what his parents would think, yeah. especially his beloved mother, Leslie. Yeah, he was still so living at home even after yeah. he had become a superstar. You know, we forget that he was only 19 when he became yeah. famous and only, what, like 23 when, when, um, when Faith came out? Let's see. Uh, he was born in 63. Faith came out in um, 88. So, you're, yeah, you're close. He was t about 24, 25. Talking about a very young person, uh, you know, and, and suddenly he's one of the most famous people in the world. But it just seems to me that if he had come out, at least to the people close to him, he would have been a happier person. Maybe I'm, I'm you know, just uh, 
putting 2022 hindsight on it, but it just seems <laughs> like, you know, it can't, it can't, you can't be happy living in fear. It's a hard call because, again, he felt that he stood to lose everything that he had fought for, everything that he felt gave his life meaning, if word leaked out. I'll tell you something interesting, though. When I was researching this book in uh, England in 2018, I sat at the British Library and I looked at literally 800 articles that I took home with me uh, about articles that covered George's entire career as depicted in the UK. And I looked in a lot of the tabloids because the tabloids were on his ass starting from the very beginning. And I thought that there were all these outing attempts in the British tabloids about him, but there were very few. Instead, the pop music columns were full of stories about George's um, imaginary assignations with and women. hot love affairs with women, right. including Brooke Shields. Yes, and, so and you write that Brooke Shields was a was a popular beard for closeted gay men at the time. <laughs> it's true. Her thing with George lasted for about a week, but so reams of publicity came out of that. I don't even so these girls that. were useful. Well, because it, went, it came and went in a heartbeat. These women were useful to him at a time when he needed to depict himself as that, as a heterosexual, uh, heartbreaking stud. But um, he was dying inside, and then he met the love of his life, this Brazilian man, this lovely, warm-hearted, sweet-faced, open-hearted, completely out-of-the-closet Brazilian, and he thought that he had found his angel from on high. And then what happened? What happened was uh, six months into the relationship, Anselmo, that's his name, found out that he was HIV positive. At that time, it was pretty much a death sentence. We're talking 1990, late 1991, I believe this happened. And, uh, and George was shattered because he felt that the fates really had it out for him. They had given him this angel and then swiped it away, which is what happened in 1993, Anselmo died. Mm -hmm. And that was the first big step in George's downward spiral. And when you say downward spiral, you're, you're referring to the drugs. Uh, yes, uh, the drugs and what resulted from the heavy drug use, which started more or less with pot. He became a pothead in the mid-90s, became a bigger pothead when his mother, Leslie, died prematurely of cancer in 1997. And then he moved on to the hard stuff, primarily GHB, which I would say is the single biggest factor in his demise. Wow. And, and the other thing is he didn't come out publicly until 1998 when he was arrested for soliciting a cop in a men's room. And then the same thing happened in 2006. And I think the question we all had at the time, and even now, is why does a rich, famous, gorgeous man have to troll public bathrooms for sex? Like, surely he could have had sex with any hot guy he wanted to. Um, George's theory about that after the arrest took place is that he thought that he was subconsciously trying to out himself mm -hmm. because he couldn't stand being in the closet anymore. And so that little voice led him to do so in the most flattering and self-destructive way he could find. Unflattering, you mean? Uh, did I say? Yeah, un sorry, yeah. unflattering. But then, but then why do it again in 2006? I mean, maybe he just had a thing for, for tea room cruising. 
that was his thing. If if something is your thing, then what can you do? But um, he never stopped. And in fact, in in the last 10 to 15 years, he talked about it publicly. He talked about it on the radio. It would appear that he was unashamed and and proud and defiant, and in a way he was. But uh, George was a, it became a Twitter junkie in the final years. And reading those tweets is a very, very instructive thing because there, it, it, it made it clear to me and to others that George didn't have very much happiness in being gay. There was more of a defiant middle finger raise, this is who I am, and if you, and if you don't like it, um, up yours. Uh, after George died, Elton John said in as many words that he thought George was never happy being gay, and I unfortunately agree with that. I don't think he was ever happy, period. I, I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm only about a fourth of the way through the book, but I can't seem to find a moment in this man's life when he enjoyed his success, when he enjoyed everything he had worked so hard for. It's very interesting because he exuded a kind of happiness uh, and, and a lot of self-assurance and absolute ease on stage. But the stage is the stage. It's a, pla- it's a place where you, you, you play a character that you want to play. David Geffen was one of my favorite interviews for this book, and he corroborates what you said, that he, if, that he said if George was ever really happy, he, David, never saw it. It's so sad. You know, he died at the age of 53, which is, seems shockingly young to me now that I'm 51, um, in 2016. And there were numerous reports at the time about his boyfriend, partner at the time, Fadi Fawaz. What did you find out about this Fadi Fawaz character in, in your reporting? Well, they were together for the last four years of George's life, and Fadi was eye candy and arm candy. Fadi had done porn. Fadi was George's physical idea, which is to say hairy and swarthy. He liked that. Fadi was an ex-hairdresser and a very good one. Um, He gave all of that up pretty much in order to become George's boyfriend. And uh, some people recall Fadi to me as kind of benign and sweet. Everybody agrees that he was no brain surgeon. Uh, And for a brief period of time, and George tweeted to this effect numerous times, he was he was thrilled to have Fadi on his arm. But um, but it was like all of George's relationships. It was an open relationship. And uh, and and George was in the Fadi period in his absolute most frightening phase of self-destruction. And you know where it ended. But the thing is, he didn't die of a drug overdose, which is what everyone thought at the time. He died of heart disease. How did his use of GHB and maybe other drugs impact that? Well, I've researched GHB a lot, and it wasn't only GHB, I, I hasten to add. He, he, was, he smoked cigarettes. He smoked a lot of pot, I would say, every day of his life, probably throughout the day. And he also was uh, um, arrested for possession of crack cocaine at one point. So he put his body through a lot. Also, at the end of his life, he had gained an enormous amount of weight. There are photographs to prove it. It is He, he looks like a shockingly bloated George Michael, shockingly so. And so uh, after all the years of self-abuse, I have I, now while I have not seen the coroner's report, it's been withheld from the family, by the family, rather, 
He, um, it's, it's clear as his previous boyfriend, Kenny Goss said, I think Kenny nailed it when he said that after all George has put his, had put his body through, his body just gave out. So his heart stopped beating. So in that sense, it was indisputably heart failure. One of the things I love about your book is you go through the making of uh, each of his hit songs and the videos that accompany them, and you really break them down sort of into their, their elements. And it's made me go back and listen to the music and watch the videos and really appreciate them in a whole new way. What do you think his legacy is culturally and musically? Uh, two things come to mind. One is <clears throat> that whenever, from the beginning of this project, I signed to do it in May of 2017, five, six months after George had died. And I realized that for all the tragedy, all the DUIs, all the public humiliations that George's life amassed in his life, that his one big legacy of his is happiness. Because when I mentioned his name to anybody, everybody broke into a smile. It was as though the mention of the name George Michael evoked the voice of George Michael, which was this sweet, boyish, caressing, masculine, uh, vulnerable, heart-rending quality, beautiful natural gift for singing. And then they think of songs, undoubtedly, that, 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 that have, have remained etched on their hearts. So people would say, oh, I love George Michael. And the second and the more unlikely part of his legacy is that he is a kind of a gay hero. And go figure, the guy, this guy who, who admitted that had he not forcibly outed himself in this unfortunate way that occurred in, a, in, a, uh, in, in the Will Rogers Memorial Park in April of 1998, Beverly Hills, he even admitted that he probably would not have come out the regular way had that incident not happened. And yet, all of that has been washed away, Adam, and, when, and, and I meet young people all the time, I mean in their 20s, who know about George Michael and who look up to him simply because he was a gorgeous, godlike, uh, super gifted um, uh, pop music god standing on stages as a gay man, whether he acknowledged it or not. Gays knew it. And they somehow felt empowered by that, and, he, and they still do. Another thing is that he was, he was sex positive in a loud, yes. um, uh, um, uh, aggressive way. And that, too, was empowering. He was not a clown figure like Boy George or Elton John. Those people were considered to be safe gays. George Michael was a dangerous gay because he was hot. He was handsome. He was openly sexual, and he was in people's faces with it. Yeah, I mean, I I can identify with that as as a closeted gay teenager. Uh, I want your sex and faith, uh, and uh, all of his videos were hugely important to me. And I definitely saw something in him that made me go like, oh, you know, maybe there is something to to being a gay guy, even though, as you say, he was closeted. Uh, could anyone have saved him from himself, or was he ultimately just too self-destructive to save? He was eaten alive by self-hatred, and I don't believe anyone could have saved him. Some friends tried. As a superstar, of course, he had a coterie of ass-kissers and yes-men around him. It always happens. 
Uh, George didn't want their advice. He didn't want to be corrected or scolded or lectured by anybody. He was going to do exactly what he wanted to do. And I do. I think he was so hell-bent on self-destruction that I doubt anything could have saved him. Well, the book is fascinating. It's called George Michael, A Life. It's available everywhere books are sold. How can people follow James Gavin online? Uh, in a variety of ways, at ampers, uh, ampersand James Gavin Books on both Twitter and uh, Instagram. My name on Facebook. Great, uh, great to be, talk to you, James. A certain age. Great thank, to talk to you, Adam. Thank I you love so it. much. I love you. Be well. Jenny and JB, plug yourselves. Clutter Cowgirl on Instagram, at Clutter Cowgirl, and Here and Now Wellness, at Here and Now Wellness. On Instagram. At StockingAnk12, only on Instagram. Thank you both so much. We're back live again next week with guest host Joanne Filan and Ty Blue, director of the hit show Titanic. Bye. Bye.